Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? So excited for our guest today, J.D. Brad Bessie is having an amazing career. From executive producer of Entertainment Tonight for 17 years, to launching the talk on CBS Daytime, to going back to college in his 50s and studying and teaching communications at California State University, Northridge, to his newest venture, head of communications and talent for Project Angel Food. Brad is also an amazing father, partner, and BFF. Thank you. I love that introduction. BFF. I'll take it from you, Sue. I walked a Susie's grandmother down the aisle at her wedding. Like that. I know. How far back we go and how close yes. we were. I actually did several things at her wedding. I also walked, I think, a cousin down the aisle and <laughs> I checked guests in. So I had many hats being worn that <laughs> You earned your place in her life for sure. I think my, my main goal that day was to be the calmer in chief. Like I just needed <laughs> to try to keep everything as calm as I can. And I think maybe that's my purpose in life. I think I, mm. I've i been uh, the calmer uh, in, in chaotic situations. I'll get in and, and make things work no matter what. I love that. I love that. That should be somewhere on your website or something somewhere. That's like amazing. Everybody needs a calmer in chief. Mm. Um, so I have a question yeah. for you. You know, you've you've gone through so many transitions, which is really exciting and we'll get into them all. But I wanted to start with how you launched the talk And the second half of that question is, what do you think with the whole controversy that has emerged with uh, Sharon Osbourne in the talk? Wow, this is a, a, that's a, first of all, a really good question. Mm -hmm. Uh, One that I've been asked a lot by the media. Um, I am thinking, you know, I did that so long ago. And yet from the New York Post to the the New Yorker to Huffington Post to uh, the trades, I have received a lot of uh, CBS News, a lot of requests for interviews. And I haven't really talked about it. So I don't know how deep I'll talk about it with you today, but it is certainly the first time and probably the only time I'll talk about it. Fair enough. First of all, let's go back to the talk. I was co-executive producer of Entertainment Tonight. Uh, My friend John Redman was executive producing the talk. I thought it was really um, so exciting for him. It had been announced. uh, It was that summer we were at the CBS a TCA where all the executives and all the stars of the CBS shows come together. It was a big CBS party. And I was talking to John's bosses and to John and to Julie Chin just about the show, just because it was conversational. And the uh, vice president of daytime at the time was saying to me, well, we want to do this and this and this. And she's like talking about it as though it was hard. And I said, it's not that difficult. All you need to do is you take your lens and you take the content of the day and you put it through the lens of that conversation. So it was just sort of that sort of a conversation. And then the next thing I know, I was getting a phone call asking me to come in and talk to them about being executive producer of the talk. And I talked to John and he was aware that they were going to seek someone to be a showrunner, to be the chief executive producer, right? And then he would be reporting to them. John and I, truth be told, collaborated on the show. Although I was technically the showrunner, he and I did everything uh, together. And we worked really closely. Um, and I, and he said at the time, he said, Brad, I, they're going to bring someone in to be the showrunner. I'd rather have it be you than some douche I don't know. Uh, so we did that. And I have to say, it was one of the most challenging, um, exciting, invigorating um, opportunities of my lifetime. Primarily, it gave me a chance to step into my leadership and recognize that I was the one that was driving uh, it forward and making the impossible um, possible. I had someone say to me, an executive in charge of production who I hadn't hired, say to me, 
um, you know, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And I said to him, look, I know what I'm doing is impossible. In seven weeks from now, I will be having a national live daytime talk show. I know we don't have a staff. I know we don't have a set. I know all the limitations. I know the impossibilities. But if you can't get me to yes, get out of my way. Because failure is not an option. It must happen. So it was really an exciting time. And I, I worked very closely with Mr. Mungas at the time and with the talent. Um, that that I sort of had had been given to me. Um, so my experience with Sharon Osbourne was she's mischievous, she's funny, she's a provocateur. Um, she certainly uh, uh, had moments of um, just divine um, uh, provocation. Um, I, 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 one example is I was having a very... Uh, serious meeting and she was uh, sitting there uh, uh, the hosts were all together and they were sitting and facing me and I was having this conversation with them and it was very serious and very heartfelt about whatever that issue was of the day and Mrs. O was sitting there and she took her finger and moved it down to her nipple and she started rubbing her nipple and making faces at me during this very heartfelt conversation. That was sort of how playful she was, right? right? So yeah. I think, um, so I have also experienced her in a, in a way where she's a, 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 an advocate of people, no matter what. And I've, uh, she's, I would not characterize her from anything that I experienced from her as being racist or homophobic. I thought that she was a champion of people. That being said, it wouldn't be unlike her to, to sort of use any of the terms, none of which she said in front of me, so I don't know the validity of them, but just in a moment to say something that was shocking or, or you know, it's, it's one of those things that someone says something that's shocking because it's shocking or uses a phrase because it's shocking not because that's the core of their belief, but because they want to, in a moment, you know, say the most shocking thing possible. It wouldn't be unlike her to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not making any excuses for her, nor undermining anyone else's sort of experience of that. So that of, of sort of her using those or being on that email chain, I certainly was was not, and nor did I hear any of those remarks. Yeah. All that being said, I do think that. I recommended talent changes going into the second season. Mm. And ultimately when the, when CBS said they were happy with the panel that we had in my quiet morning of meditation, I thought I, I realized that I was promising the audience a, a show that I wasn't being true to. Right. I was promising it was a show about women that were coming together who were friends who through the lens of their experiences of women as women, they could sort of uh, process the day. And, and as opposed to the view where everyone came in with different points of view, my conception of the show was that we can come together through sort of common worlds and we can see ourselves sort of reflected in the issues of the day. So where does the, do those issues intersect with us? And my feeling was if we could honestly talk about the things that were coming up in the world, then somewhere an audience would see themselves in those conversations or, or begin to wonder, what's my voice in this conversation, right? So all of that had to do with coming together. And I felt that there were some cast members that were playing life on our show, sort of like a bad reality show. Mm. And ultimately, I, I felt like the behind the scenes of that would be... Um, not beneficial moving forward. So when they were not willing to make any of those changes, I said, I love the show. I love launching it, but I don't think I can actually be part of it because then I'm perpetuating this lie. I'm saying that these, right? So it's not, I see the, the distinction I had, and maybe it was naive at the time, maybe not, was the vision of what I saw the show growing into could only grow there if I made those cast changes. Mm -hmm. And so without making the cast changes, then every day I felt I would be compromising on the potential of the show. So would I want to show up to create a show every day that I thought was a 
smaller version of the great possibility. So they ended up making cast changes. And I think that ultimately I was right. I think that the show flourished in the second season, etc. So for some of the cast members who did not move forward with the show after that first season, for them to come back now all this time later and start airing grievances, they're only showing you parts of the emails. They didn't show you the parts of the emails that they sent that might have provoked those responses, right? That was sort of uh, unfortunate. So I think it was a, a pile on Mrs. O sort of time. I thought it was a little wonky going back and replaying the the tape and uh, or watching that show, which I had done. I saw it as the sort of what happened became bigger than what happened. Mm. And it could have been handled so much differently. And there was an opportunity there for there to be an exchange about the issues that we're experiencing right now in our culture. There was a different point of view and there was an opportunity for education. You know, the way that it works is that we have our eight o'clock meeting. Everyone talks about what we're going to talk about. People go into their dressing rooms, they're doing hair and makeup. We sort of touch base with each other. So you get bits and pieces of information. So Cheryl Underwood is going to take exception to what Mrs. O is saying. Then it's the responsibility of the producers to say to Mrs. O, hey, just so you know, Cheryl has a really big point of view and she feels like, like what he was saying was racist. So she's going to bring that to your attention. It gives Mrs. O an opportunity to think about how she wants to respond to that. And it's not all playing out live, live on the air. They've had a, a dignity and a chance to process that. And even after it happened, there was an opportunity to come back and deal with it immediately. Just, you know, how if you're in a relationship with someone and something happens, you let it fester. But now other people were talking about and it kept growing and ultimately it ended you know it ended with cast changes again so 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 here's the thing for me yeah you know the controversy with Sharon Osbourne is a symptom um the fact that she responded in a way that was oppressive is problematic because Mm -hmm. if you genuinely have knowledge as you do about diverse issues you're not going to tell a black person, teach me. And right. you're not going to do it on TV. Well, right. number one. Number two, you're not going to say, don't cry either, because it's oppressive. So that comes from inside your body. That doesn't come from a heads up. That comes from your truth. And that's what's problematic. But she is a symptom. That whole thing is a symptom of what Hollywood has going on. And you've spoken to it before the idea of, putting brown people and black people in places and thinking that's a solution. Mm. You know, just because you have a diverse panel doesn't mean you have a diverse panel who are, you know, anti-racist in their mission. You know her better than I do. Do you think she's actively racist? No, I I believe you. However, to not know that white people own racism and it's your responsibility to do something about it and to respond in a way that's oppressive, Mm -hmm. it makes her a target. And it's pretty much the truth. Exactly. So it does, right. But now let's take it just another beat further. Okay. So it, this is all happening on my television, right? Yes. So yes. now what we have is a real issue happening between women. And it's happening now as uh, a, a piece of entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. So now this conflict, now we're not dealing with the issues. We are dealing, we we are now using it as a way to fuel ratings and, and, and column inches. And we are now, now the media then begins fueling that controversy, that controversy and nowhere there. I don't think in any of, of the things that I saw sort of afterwards, it's like flood of everything. I don't think it was with the spirit of healing. It was the spirit of fueling the controversy and fueling yeah. the vision. So I think that that's, you know, again, it's unfortunate, but you're right. But see, I do think that that is a symptom of or the white privilege, which I know we've talked about quite a bit. And that is teach me, number one, and I've heard you say this, it's not my job to teach you, it's your racism to deal with. Right. And then the idea of stop 
crying. Don't like stop crying. That really is like, is a trigger moment, right? So the idea that I don't know that, and I haven't discussed this with her. So yeah, I believe it I'm for her. But this idea that like she might not be thinking of the the colonialism and the right. like she might not thinking of the historic how many times in our right. world has a black woman told not don't have your emotion yeah. and shut up because I white privilege am speaking, right? Yeah. So she in that moment where she's defensive is not thinking of what those words are saying or triggering. I believe you. Right? Yes. And the other thing, it goes back to this idea of there's a, a line in Course of Miracles that I um, often will reflect on and meditate on, and that is, in my defenselessness, my safety lies. Mm. So in defending myself, thinking that now I'm looking bad, if I'm Sharon Osborne, and again, this is me hypothetically speaking, yeah, I understand. not her, but if I'm now defending right. myself, now I've got to, I'm protecting myself. Now I'm just sort of, now I'm throwing things. Let me throw it over there. Right. So in defenselessness, you can now open up that conversation. So I, if she's not defending herself, then she's, then would actually be open to have that conversation and to hear possibly how what she is saying is the inappropriateness of what she was was saying. I felt that to be that whole situation. I, I stepping sort of not being in the media, and and then it's almost like sharks in a way. Mm-hmm. So now she feels she has to go, right? It's sort of sick of, right? So now she feels she has to go out and uh, and talk about it. On the campaign trail. Right. So now she starts talking about it and people start using our exclusive interview with Sharon right. or she says, and then it sort of starts going back and forth. Right. So all of this is just bait in the water, not at the goal of finding resolution to the systematic problems that we're having but to fuel ratings and it's all about the conflict. Absolutely. But we know that that's what Hollywood's about. We know that's what the media about. Media is one of the biggest problems in systemic racism. Mm -hmm. That is the truth. And I absolutely concur with you, which is why I say she, you know, that whole thing is a symptom. It's a symptom, but you know, through your social justice lens, it is problematic because in the, in the heat of the moment, your truth comes out Mm -hmm. and whether it's ignorant truth, or educated truth, it comes out. And that's, and that's problematic in and of itself because the media, the, the networks, they don't do enough to understand what that means. That could have been an incredibly emotional moment for both of them, had they had a diversity coach like myself. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But truly, you know what I mean though? You know what I mean? And to that point, if they had a diversity coach the very next day. The next day. Come right back. Don't go on a media trail. Let's hide this. Let's, you know, let's not deal with this. And then, then to come back later and offer a statement and, and have her, you know, leave the show. Here's what what I think was, would have been a more interesting way for this to play and a more authentic way for this to play is if she had not left the show and we were able to come back and say, look, this has gone on. Let's understand this. That would have the level of authenticity that I was looking for in creating with the talk, right? That would be an authentic leaning, learning moment and an authentic way to, to deal with it instead of let's cover all of our asses and say that we've done an investigation and we've done right. like, I'm sure that they did. That's all fine. But then they're leaving out another participant in this moment. And that participant is the audience. What I kept saying when I was producing that show is there's another person at this table and it's the audience, right? So that closure to say, to release a, a statement to the trades and to say, okay, this is this and Sharon Osbourne's resigning and this is all what's going on. That's all fine, but we're leaving out someone that was in this conversation with us. And that's the audience member. And you may have had 
diversity training been in the with between the producers and the talent and the executives and you may have done all of that but who was that person that wasn't in that room and that was the audience so i think that an opportunity might exist for us to have dealt with it at that point and on that level because you know because the the audience is a really important part of any show especially that show right but here's the thing the reason why they couldn't do that is because they weren't equipped to do that and just because, and I'm going to go into what you thought in retrospect about hiring the first black host of ET, what you have to say about that is what the issue is. You know, they yes. think that they can keep putting black people and brown people in positions and that's going to impact systemic racism. And each and every time it shows up, the same thing happens. It's like Groundhog Day. Like how many times yeah. do you have to have this happen before you realize the problem is deeper? And you have to deal with it. And let's be honest, as long as they can make money, why would they want to deal with it? Well, you well, know, it's, it's so funny because everywhere. since the I last mean, time the we Bachelor spoke, Michelle example. Turner, who at the point I had to, well, I think we talked about the way that I, I you know, since that, that conversation, I don't think anyone will have seen. Right. Let's just go back to this. I uh, hired Kevin Frazier as the first Black host of Entertainment Tonight. So happy to have done that. So proud to have done that. Um, I, I think he is such a talented, talented man. And I was really honored to be able to do that. And I had to, uh, at that point, I had to pitch it to directly to Mr. Moonves because no one else would. So I was happy to do that. And in that conversation where it was really going well, I had wanted to and been pursuing and chasing and recruiting for over a year, Michelle Turner, who was at CNN, and I thought she was brilliant. She was she was perfect uh, on a glamorous red carpet. She was perfect whether she was like doing a, a serious, hard hitting story. I wanted her, and they were saying, "Well, I don't know. You you know, is that too many black people? Like too many black talent?" Yeah, right, right. That's sort of what the feedback I was getting. So there I was with Mr. Moombas. Things were going well. And he said these magical words. He said, is there anything else you need from me? So in that moment, I said, well, there's Michelle Turner, who's this awesome reporter on CNN. I think hiring her would give her the credibility that we need for, for news stories. And she's walks it on the red carpet. I'd like to hire her. I said, go ahead and do it. And so I left that meeting with the authority to go ahead and... Yeah. And, and hire them. She was just named the first female African-American co-host of Entertainment Tonight all these years later. Mm -hmm. There was a time when I couldn't have her host the weekend show with Kevin Frazier yeah. because it was only by putting Cameron Matheson there where I had a white host would I be allowed to put her there. So I know I'm spilling secrets and, and uh, if I get a cease and desist from CBS, I'm so <laughs> sorry. But I will tell you that that was sort of the racism that was gone. And I had to, at one point where Nancy O'Dell was off, um, Kevin Frazier was there, and I made the decision to have Kevin and Michelle host the show together. And I received a phone call from an executive who told me that not to do that. Mm. And I said, what? And I, yes, I'm being very discreet. And I said, and uh, I said, if I had two white hosts, yes. would you tell me not to do that? Silence. And I said, since the answer is no, I'm going to have Kevin and Michelle host the show together. Good for you. And I said, and if you're demanding that I not, please put it in writing and stipulate the reason why. Look at you. You're a boss. So, yeah. So I had to fight oh, for those changes every single my way. The reality was that they're brilliant. And the reality is our ratings went through the roof that day. That, I, I mean, that's an exaggeration. They improved that day, right? Okay. And I think the reason why they improved that day is because Michelle and Kevin are really great hosts. They're informed. They're passionate. They engage. They engage the audience. Like all those attributes that they had, those were the qualities that attracted an audience to them. Right. So I felt like bit by bit, it's like chipping away at the 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 racism. And then once people see, well, it, you know, it didn't actually hurt us. It it helped us, and it took that many years. How, how long have its identity? Four, three, four, five years, and it took 
them that long to acknowledge that they, oh gosh, Kevin and Michelle can be hosts of the show together. That's awesome. Well, and and so talk about that, that part where you thought that was, you know, a, a cure, a solution. Like you really were hopeful that hiring people in key positions but what you learned in retrospect about that, because I think that's an important nuance, like even though that was an incredible success story, what did you yeah. learn in retrospect about what I'm sure. saying in terms of putting people in positions? I'll tell you, I sort of noticed some things about that. First of all, I felt it was crucial because I thought it, it, I needed to reflect. Like for me, I always go down to some art. I like, I use the words like, am I being relevant? If I'm doing any sort of a show, I ask myself the questions. Am I relatable? Am I relevant? Does this really impact people where they are? And then, so for me, if I just had this looking at America as it exists with all these, you know, with all the whiteness that seemed to be ET, I felt like it didn't speak to the audience. So I felt it was important to have diversity represented there, right? And I went about finding talent that actually was really, really, really good. That was with Kevin. Like I specifically, I specifically wanted a person of color there. And Kevin, I brought over to Entertainment Tonight. He was at that point just a correspondent and a weekend anchor. And then through the years, he was able to like grow into become the host of, of Entertainment Tonight after hosting the, the Insider. But I think what he brings to it is a conversationality and a relatability. So I do find that when I recognize this about that, that I have said oftentimes in, in hiring women and hiring people of color, wanting to make sure I had a, a very diverse workplace, I would say, well, I, I wanted to invite different voices to the table. Mm. And in retrospect, I recognize the privilege of that. Like I, like as a white, as a white man, I was given the authority to invite the voices to the table. I'm also a, a gay white man, right? So there were times in situations, especially with like salespeople and uh, you know, and really uncomfortable situation where we are going to be on a private jet and people are drinking tequila and they're objectifying women and all the things that I hate to be in those environments. Okay, you can you can produce the shows for us, but you're not going to be one of us. So I felt a little bit of that. In some ways, my privilege as white male sort of overrides my uh, sort of how I might be silenced as a gay white man. I can say that if I did too much gay content, that I would be called on that, right? So I do think that that's, that piece is there. And then there, it's all coded language too. So people talk about broad audiences and wanting to make sure that we relate to Mary in Kansas. So all of those sort of codes are make sure that you're programming for white people so that they're not affected, right? So there's all sorts of codes codes that go along with that. Mm, So I don't think it's enough to have people like represented at the table, like, hi, I've got, like, I think sometimes that's the, that is the problem because you have to look beyond the, the sort of the symbolism of that black person or that Latino person or that, like you have to look beyond that and ask then once they're there, is their voice, do I listen to their voice? Do I have, you know, where is their, you know, how do we get their voice heard? And are they just presentational or actually are they able to make a real difference there? So I think for television, that's why it's important not only to have black talent, but also to have uh, black writers and producers behind the yeah. camera as well. And it's an older study now, but I'm almost sure that, that the statistics haven't changed that much. I hope they have. But an older study where in newsrooms, 90% of the people in management positions were all white, all those mm-hmm. people making the editorial decisions, right? So that affected everything. So right. that when they were having experts that were lawyers or doctors or those sorts of experts, they were all white. And when they were having people who were criminals and who were like the, those people were all black. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting the way that that sort of racism sort of filtered into the images that we're seeing. So it is goes back to the systemic issue of now we're promoting these pictures 
and these negative stereotypes. So I think that for me, producing, like I'm not doing a lot of producing right now, but I think that that's okay. I mean, I think it's okay because I think that there have been, like I was talking with someone, it became between me and one other person for a national talk show. I was invited into these conversations and, and it was, it came down really close between me and one other person. And my whole conversation with them is, you don't need to be talking to me. You need a black woman in this role. You are producing a television show for a black woman who is the host. It's an a great opportunity to really change this conversation. It's so you don't want me to hear. Mm-hmm. You want someone else in this role. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they ended up hiring another white guy. And then in season two, they were able to shift it and, and have, you know, women of color in those leadership roles. But I think that that's really important that it's not just cosmetic on the surface. And I have friends who are in casting and oftentimes they, they will just say, well, we need diversity. And so they'll plop a black actor into a role written for a white actor. Right. And it's like, it doesn't fit that there's nothing that's lived about that character. So then the actors then need to really work with the producers and the writers to shift that character to be authentic. And then actors of color are seen as being difficult because now they're wanting to change everything. Oh, dear me. Look, you've said a mouthful. It was perfect. I I have nothing to debate about. I I would just add one other nuance, which is not only do you need people of color in leadership roles, you need people of color in leadership roles who are not afraid that they will lose their job if they're true to themselves and in their culture. And there is such a sellout factor that once you get this job, you have to walk a thin line and there, you you know, what are you willing to give up? You know, what are you willing to give up? And a lot of times, once you attain that type of success, you don't want to be whitelisted and never get a job again in Hollywood because you advocated for your community and on behalf of anti-black racism, which by the way, once we're focusing on anti-black racism, everybody benefits. You don't need to say stop Asian hate. You need to say stop white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the focus that people put on and particularly white people put on is to avoid the biggest issue in our society, which, by the way, has perpetuated the biggest issue in our society, which is white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And So that's the dilemma. It's so tricky. The nuances of who to hire, how they can move forward. Can they really advocate? Are they in a role to advocate? And if they don't advocate, what's that going to say the communities of color? And if they do advocate, are they going to keep their position or be whitelisted? It's huge. I I think that that sellout factor is really, really important. Not so much from a race perspective, from a feminist perspective. I thought that the second Wonder Woman film was a complete sellout. I felt like they had a real opportunity breaking through to really take it to another level. I was excited to see it. And I was really disappointed about some of the sexist uh, stereotypes and tropes that we saw in that film. Here you have women behind the camera, women in power roles, women producing. It was such a, you know, a woman superhero. There was such a breakthrough moment with the first film. And the second film, we, we got comfortable. I also felt Heaven, I've watched it now three times, but I have an uncomfortable relationship with a a more recent film, Promising Young Woman, because I feel like there's, we don't really deal with it. Like there's a woman who's dealing with the rape culture. And rather than taking on the rape culture, what we do is like the main character has to lose her job. She can't be a professional woman with a voice and then speak up against the system uh, that that perpetuates the rape culture, right? She can't push against toxic masculinity other than now stalking people and becoming something that ends up, a spoiler alert, that ends up killing her. So the only way that you can attack or or challenge toxic masculinity and uh, a rape culture is if you die for it. Yes. You've got all of these women behind the camera and that's the story we're going to tell. Yes, it was funny. Yes, it was clever. Yes, it was all of those things. That's the story we're going to tell. What, What can't our feminine hero be empowered 
And we're now going to take her to the brink and actually she's going to break. Like she has to cross the brink and actually kill herself to get her voice heard. That to me was like, damn it. Yes. I do think that is a huge problem. And that is tokenism is, it runs rampant. We see it in academia, right? You have diversity sort of councils, right? And that's almost like the university points to that saying, see, we're doing something about it. The reality is, that you're not doing enough about it, right? You're, you're, it's, they point to that almost like it's the solution, but yeah. no. And these right. institutions right. have to sort of work, like these groups have to work within this sort of this, the system. And, and people don't want to be challenged in the system. Mm-hmm. So basically, we're going to put out our diversity report, and that says we're doing something about it. But are we really doing something about it? Yeah. Are we really going to change? I don't think so. So I think it's, I think we see this in entertainment and then we also see it across the board in so many other areas. Absolutely. We see it in the gay community. I mean, the fact that, you know, racism in the gay community has not been addressed is one of the sadder places in my life being a part of, of the community. It has made me prioritize my blackness over my gayness, which Mm. has been something, been a challenge. What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) I have so many thoughts on that. I know you do. <laughs> That's what oh, I asked you. Gosh. Um, hmm. Look, I, I think that uh, I think there needs to be a, a big <laughs> shift, and we need to start. I think the, the value of a Black Lives Matter it becomes a, an opportunity for us to start looking at our inner intersectionality, right? And so. Mm-hmm. I think in the gay community, the LGBTQ plus community, I think that there is, uh, especially with equal rights, there is sort of an assumption that the subject um, of those rights is white and usually a white gay man. And I look at how that has happened. I've studied this. I looked at the, there was a Supreme Court litigation to win chapter seven protections for the LGBTQ community. There were three cases that were sort of bundled together. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of them was Gerald Bostock and the HRC did a video about uh, Gerald Bostock while they were campaigning sort of to get to win these rights. And we ended up winning the rights. Yay. Happy day. But the way we did it was in this sort of white heteronormative sort of language, this heterosexual matrix that we live in and that we are just playing in. So the video that they did, which is called I Was Fired for Being Gay, it it sort of perpetuated that he's white, he's middle class, he has a job, he's driving in his car, he plays softball. Um, you know, he wants to do it for love, right? This, he works with children, like all of those things that sort of normalize his experience. So had he been a black man, like I would just, could we just picture this differently? He's black. He is not into sports. You know, he is into drugs and he likes to party till 2 a.m. Like, is he going to be the subject that we put forward? No, because we wouldn't need to win our rights in the, in this culture this heteronormative sort of white culture, right? So we have to win them in that privilege. Even Amy Stevens, who's passed away, who is a trans woman who won her equal rights in that same litigation, right? In the same case, case she, her ACLU lawyer argued not for her as a woman, as a trans woman, but for her as a insufficiently masculine male. Mm. They had to do it based on case law, based on these other things, and also based on this sort of things that that the language that could be understood, right? And even like the justices were getting confused with pronouns as they were sort of talking about this case. And I just sort of looked at that and thought, wow, winning the rights you had to, she, she didn't win rights as her livable trans woman self she had to be, they had to sort of twist the way they described her to win those rights. And I, I started looking at sort of the, the language there and, and with the, you know, jumping back to Gerald Bostock, the ways that we as rights advocates need to really focus on the intersectionality. And we need to turn a critical lens on our own community 
and start looking at the ways that we are racist. Reading a lot of literature in this area has been fascinating and eye-opening and painful and uh, reflective. You know, what areas do I see? What, what areas have I allowed my white privilege to sort of supersede everything else? Yeah. What, what areas, right? And I think that there have been too many ways that in the gay culture, like racism does exist and we just pretend it doesn't, right? So I think that there needs to be, uh, there is a call for more voices in that conversation. And I, I've been having conversations as I've tried to use my research actually to break down those walls. And it's fascinating because it's not all one thing. And then I will shut up in a minute. But the, one of the things that I did, I was looking at, well, what if I had this question after sort of seeing that Alfonso David, African-American man, is now the, the president of the HRC, right? So I start thinking, well, is this going to have an impact, right? Now, he's elected, they do this very white video on Gerald Bursak. So what ways did it actually has a material effect? So when he's elected, I see rainbow colors. I see lots of people of color. I see lots of diversity in that video. This other video, which was produced afterwards, it's all white all the time. There's there's no diversity whatsoever. So I start asking myself the question, well, what if we had that leadership? What difference does that make? So I did a study, a survey, where I took a, a LGBTQ plus people of color. I sent them a survey with the same message. One was a white president giving that message of an equal rights organization for LGBTQ people. One was a black man. Right. So I sent those out and I thought, oh, this is going to prove it. They're going to come back. And when they see that message coming from a person of color, they're going to come back to me and they're going to say, yes, we respond and we identify more with that. That didn't happen. And you know why it didn't happen? And this is what I sort of realized afterwards in my sample. I was, it was heavily weighted Latinos. And so they identified themselves as white, not black. So, so right. So then I realized, oh my gosh, there's a flaw in my research because I'm looking at people of color as the same bar. So now I need to dig deeper and start looking at the intersectionality of all of us. So those, that's sort of the, um, the opportunities that exist for us in, in keep on digging, right? Awesome. Broadly. Wow. You know, I so appreciate this because we live in a society that is so resistant and uncomfortable with these kinds of conversations. And so for you to really break it down as a white man of privilege, I, you know, I, I know you and I are both doing our work. It's sometimes really hard and challenging. And I just want to say I'm, I'm so proud of you. Um, oh, what ways do you feel like you have been humbled well, in I'll tell this you, journey I, to I become think who that, you are? Um, a lot of it has been a lot of conscious work to make divorce myself in some ways from the superficial ways that I used to think gave my life value. Wow. Right. Um, I thought that my seven figure salary, my that I could go to premieres, that I could be photographed with these famous people, that I like I, I used to think that that power had capital so superficial. Mm. I actually threw away an an article, a magazine feature that was done on me where I identified that, that my summer must-haves for fashion, right, which was this shirt, this watch, and these jeans. And I looked at that, and I, from where I sit now, I, um, I started crying, actually, as I saw it because it was so superficial. And that I showed up that way then really was humbling to recognize the, the ways that I got caught up in that sort of idea of I am who I am because I can call a restaurant, give my name, and make sure I'm at a premier table. That has nothing to do with humanity. Right now, I'm more concerned about the person who isn't eating and needs food, right? And I, I sent a girlfriend of mine who's an actress, her name's Polly Perrette. So I sent her a birthday present, right? And I, through our church, we found a, uh, the homeless shelter that we're supporting for uh, homeless teens in Hollywood. And I sent them some body wipes that they are using. And so I sent Polly a text in her honor for her birthday. I sent Polly a text. I said, some people send roses. Some people send wine. I'm sending you body wipes that we delivered <laughs> to my friend's place in Hollywood. And she said, you get me so much, my brother. <laughs> right? And so those are the things that matter more to me today 
than any of the trappings of success. I think that my definition of success is so different today. And we are not successful yet in dealing with these issues of systemic racism and sexism and violence against our trans community. Right now, I'm doing a lot of research and looking at these 25 different state trans bills that would limit the viability of young athletes. Notice that they're not so concerned with the female to male athletes because they perceive those people as as being weak, but they are more concerned about the male to female athletes because they feel that that would make the playing field uneven. So I'm looking at that right now, and especially, and then I will be quiet, but I'm especially looking at the ways in which the, uh, what struck me is the ways that we use technology, medical technology, to, re- to dehumanize people. So now we're looking at what procedures have they had? What hormone levels do they have? What, when did they have it? And so now we're, we're using those technologies as weapons in our way of dehumanizing them. So what I'm fascinated with, and you're, you have lived in this space, so you understand it, but the ways that sort of that jump out at me, like when the uh, sheriff, Jay Baker, in Atlanta was giving his press conference and the way he humanized the killer, but he dehumanized, he said he targeted these locations for these murders. No, he targeted the women who worked at those locations. So he, the ways in which language is used to dehumanize some people. So those are the things that actually are really, really interesting to me and that we all need to be interested in. And those are the things that humble me today, what I know and don't know. Love it. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh my Go gosh. Ahead. Okay, JD, should I ask one more question or do you want to take it home? Okay. Bradley, I've known you for a very long time. I might have the number wrong. But as the only gay child in the Bessie family, how has that informed your life? Oh, yeah. I remember you know the, ginger, the gingerbread. Uh, yeah, it was actually gingerbread. It was so funny. Me. My mom would make Valentine's cookies where she would put our names on all of the cookies. And so for me and for Frank, she would make a cookie that said, Brad, but would just give me a plain cookie for Frank, whereas my brother's wives would get cookies with their names on it, right? So I, it's interesting. It's, um, uh, my mother died uh, 13 years ago on, you know, on Good Friday, which is when we're recording this. And so uh, they've been very much on my mind and very much present for me. I remember. Um, oh, I wow. think that it's interesting because I think that I'm in many ways I was raised to be racist. I was raised to be, to hold on to what was mine for fear that other people would take it. Uh, but they never called it racist, racism. Like I, the most awkward conversation. I remember Frank, my husband, who's Frank Sanchez, my mom explaining to him the difference between a Mexican and a wetback, right? So <laughs> that's, so that's where I'm from. So here we are. So I think that, wow. yeah, so I think that, so the, the work has had to continue and it's had to be uh, deep. But I also think that when I also look back at my parents and understand and areas where they were trying and just didn't understand me. Like if we couldn't, if I couldn't talk, there were times in my life in my early 20s where I was in so much pain. And I couldn't tell them. I couldn't tell them that I had been raped. And I couldn't tell Mm -hmm. them that I had, you know, when I tried to leave an older man that I was dating, that he tried to kill himself. I couldn't tell him. I was barely holding on to life. I turned to Vicodin. And, you know, at that point, right, that was prescribed by a doctor. And I held on to those things. And I was in such pain. I remember. they couldn't relate. I for my birthday one year they gave my like my twenty second birthday they gave me a nose job because I think that uh, thank you because what they heard me saying was and then modeling like I just offhandedly uh, said I went on a modeling shoot and uh, they said that I you know I turned profile and then I didn't get the job and I think it was because of my Bessie nose I said jokingly and they knew that I was in such pain couldn't identify what it was 
So they put it together. It must be because of his looks. And they gifted me this sort of this cosmetic surgery as a way to try to help me solve my pain at the time because we weren't talking because we couldn't talk about me being gay and being a born again Christian who didn't believe in premarital sex, winding up in Los Angeles at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and not knowing sort of how to cope. Like I got raped and beat up because I said no to sex. Like, because for me, I wanted to get to know someone. Like I was such an anomaly. So I, I think that that sort of finding, having to find my center was part of who I was from the time I was a teenager dropped off in Los Angeles and trying to navigate that field. So I knew I had such a close relationship with God that as the church was telling me that I was going to hell and that God didn't love me because I was gay, I knew that to be false. As my parents were unable to articulate their love to me, but I knew that they loved me. I knew that this idea that they hated me, even though my mom was saying, gay people are sick. They're sick, sick, sick. Yeah, I knew that she loved me. So I think that I had to try to sort of figure out the truth in all of that. So I think that that sort of being uncentered and having to find my way to truth was mm-hmm. sort of baked into the mix. So that's how it served me in this journey, to answer your question. You know, obviously, we could talk to you for another hour. Wow. I mean... <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not even going to ask you my usual closing question, which is, what do you think changing the narrative means? I think you're, you are the verb in changing the narrative. And I, I have so much respect for you. I feel like, you know, it's, it's been a pleasure to sit and have a conversation with you that was just so easy because you're so authentic. And uh, I, I appreciate that a lot, Bradley. I really do. Oh, can I just say this before we all break up for the day? I think that this podcast is such an important, authentic conversation. And I've known some of the people that you've had conversations with, and it really has taken it to another level. And I think it's such an important, fearless conversation that you're having. You're fearless with people about the world in which we live and how we all see it and, and really changing the narrative, which it's a matter of survival. If we don't change yeah. our narrative, we're either all going to kill ourselves or explode or something. It's such a valuable, vital work that you both are doing. So thank you so much for having me here on the show today. Well, you've, you've humbled me and I'm sure you've humbled Susie. I'll let her say her part right now. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you've humbled me. And, and, you know, thank you for that, that shout out. We're going to use that as a teaser, but uh, we can use it. But, you know, I was humbled by the day I walked into JD's classroom, thinking Mm -hmm. that there wasn't a racist bone in my body and being humbled by the truth. And Mm -hmm. so I really appreciate you and I have been on this sort of journey together later in life. And so it's Mm -hmm. just, you know, as JD said, it's just so (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us, Bradley. You're Thank you so much for having me. Thank Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.